0: Hi Dreamers, this is Nick and this is Andy and we host The Concession Stand, a podcast from two guys who work in the TV and movie business right here in Los Angeles. And you're listening to California Dreaming, true crime tales from the Golden State on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no setup WordPress website for your podcast. And it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now, on to today's show. I'm going to tell you the story of the quintessential California native, born and raised, chasing a sometimes fickle, sometimes elusive Hollywood dream. Born April 5, 1962, in Long Beach, California, her family moved to San Francisco in 1967, and then to the countryside community of Cloverdale, California, in the early 1970s. There she took up horseback riding, and as she got older, She grew into quite the athlete, tall, statuesque, graceful, and quite lovely. During high school, her family moved from Sonoma County to Napa Valley, where she transferred to Pacific Union College Preparatory School in Angwin, California. By the time she was 16, she was approaching a height of nearly six feet tall, making her one of the tallest in her class. With her height and her beauty, she would soon aspire to becoming a model and an actress. And before she was finished with high school, her family moved to the Los Angeles area in 1978, and she wasted no time trying to work her way into the entertainment industry, in, of course, the entertainment capital of the world. She easily landed a plethora of small roles on television and on film, and the following is a list of her extensive filmography. And this is only a partial list. This isn't even all of it. And I bet that there is hardly a person out there who hasn't seen her in at least one of these television shows or movies. She had roles in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Three's Company, Chips, Happy Days, Hill Street Blues, Laverne and Shirley, Fantasy Island, Scarface, The Jeffersons, The New Mike Hammer, Riptide, Knight Rider, Who's the Boss, The A-Team, Amazing Stories, The Love Boat, Amazon Women on the Moon, It's a Living, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, Night Court, Silk Stockings, Land's End, Vice Girls, Another Nine and a Half Weeks, Little Man on Campus, Black Scorpion, and of course, the role she might be best known for, the one for which I titled this episode, 1985's The Barbarian Queen, her first starring role. And like I said, these are only some of her TV shows and movies that she has credited to her name. And in between acting roles, she found a niche for herself in the modeling world as well, with those projects and fashion photo shoots offering her the opportunity to travel all over the United States and the world. She also enjoyed a measure of success in advertising and television commercials for Mercedes-Benz, Nike, Anheuser-Busch, Kmart, and Mattel. She soon had a huge and devoted fan base, especially after her role in John Landis' Amazon Women on the Moon. After that, she became one of those fan favorites that people like seeing at comic book conventions and events like that. She enjoyed quite the fan following and always was happy and willing to take pictures and sign autographs. On her family's website, she is described as having a gigantic personality with a ready smile and a quick wit. She was friendly, outgoing, spiritual, kind, genuine, charming, charismatically captivating, a truly unforgettable force of a human being. She took up residence in the beachside community of Venice, California, but always kept close to her family. And as I said in the beginning, she was quite the quintessential California native, enjoying strolls along the boardwalks, bike rides, and of course, time with her family whenever she could. But as the world moved into the 90s and into the new millennium, her career never really reached any further than B-movies. By the time she was approaching her 40s, She was hanging on to a waning career in Hollywood by a thread. And despite the fact that she was scraping by, she was making a living out of it. And she never, ever, ever let her status as a B-movie actress bring her down. She never stopped trying to boost her career. She was constantly working. She was constantly networking. She never turned on the devotion of her fan base. She tried working in theater. She tried stand-up comedy, and through all of the ups and downs, she was always that stunning blonde that stood head and shoulders over everyone else in a room. When she was around, everyone knew it, and she never stopped. In the industry, she was always searching for that one job, that one role, that one that would be her breakout role, but for her, it would remain elusive. So, when you're in Hollywood and you're looking for that next big thing you've still got to pay the bills and this is what led her to taking a part-time job as a hostess at the House of Blues in West Hollywood, California. And it would be there that she would meet a man whom once she found out who he was thought maybe that he might be able to elevate her career to the next level. As it would turn out His career had its shares of ups and downs as well, but he was, at one time, one of the most sought-after, prolific music producers of all time. Despite his diminutive stature, he was often a larger-than-life figure. Having been known to be somewhat reclusive in his later years, he still enjoyed the Hollywood nightlife, and everywhere he went, he was highly respected and treated like royalty. And that is precisely what brought him to the House of Blues on that evening of February 3rd, 2003, where the tall, beautiful blonde hostess caught his eye. Once she figured out who he was, she made sure that he was well taken care of for the rest of the evening at her table. She figured maybe this guy could give her waning career the jumpstart it desperately needed. What she didn't know, what she could not have possibly seen coming, was this man seated at her table at the House of Blues that night, would indeed make her a household name, but not in the way she could have ever expected. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the Barbarian Queen. Lana Clarkson was working the velvet rope at the House of Blues VIP lounge, the Foundation Room, when Phil Spector arrived sometime after one in the morning. He had been making the social rounds at some of his favorite haunts beginning around 7 p.m. on Sunday, February 2, 2003. His first stop was at a swanky Beverly Hills restaurant called The Grill on the Alley. He met his first date there that evening. They had dinner and afterwards Specter had his driver Adriana de Souza take her home remember Adriano he has an important role later on in this story after she was dropped off Specter doubled back to the grill on the alley to pick up a server who had agreed to go out with him after her shift was over together they headed over to Trader Vic's where they had some drinks afterwards Spectre and his date headed over to an Italian restaurant called Dantana's. This is another Hollywood hotspot for celebrities, a place where they like to hang out and be seen. They again had drinks there until Spectre decided it was time for him to make his final appearance of the night at the House of Blues in West Hollywood. He arrived there with a little less than an hour to go until closing time, which was 2 a.m. He was immediately taken with a beautiful blonde working the entrance of the foundation room, Lana. When Specter got there, he had already been drinking for several hours, and he had also been taking some prescription medications as well. And when Lana saw him arrive at the VIP room, she had no idea who this guy was. He was kind of a short man, and if you've seen pictures of Specter, you've seen him sporting quite a fluffy hairstyle which was actually a wig. He wore his hair like that in an effort to boost his height. And not only did Lana not know who this man was, she actually made the faux pas of addressing him as ma'am when she told him that he wasn't invited into the foundation room. It didn't help that he was wearing a women's blazer either. And when Lana turned Spectre away from entering the VIP area, he became very irate, I imagine him saying the usual stuff when a celebrity feels wronged or insulted, something like, do you know who I am kind of stuff. And to be honest, listeners, in Lana's defense, when all of this went down 15 years ago, I didn't know who Phil Spector was either. Luckily, another hostess stepped in and explained to Lana that Mr. Spector was a very important person and he needed to be very well taken care of when he's there. Lana was really embarrassed, as well as nervous, so she spent the rest of the evening trying to make it up to Specter by making sure she spoiled him with lots of attention, and he enjoyed her company very, very much. He asked Lana to join him for a drink, and she asked if she could, but you know the answer was a firm no, you just can't drink with customers when you're working the bar, so Lana continued showering Spectre with attention all the way up until closing time. So when it was time for all to pack up and go home, Spectre didn't want his evening with Lana to come to an end quite yet. He still wanted to share that drink with the lovely hostess, so he asked her to come home with him, visit his castle as he called it, and come just have one drink with him. I got the feeling from the articles that I read that this took some convincing. I didn't think that she was that interested in joining Spectre, but she probably saw it as an opportunity for her career if she'd agree to go. I mean, he was a VIP in the business, right? Yeah, he kind of was. Let's talk a little bit about who this Phil Spectre guy was. Harvey Phillip Spector was born December 26, 1939, in the Bronx, New York. His father committed suicide when he was eight years old. A few years later, his mom moved to the Los Angeles area. Spector attended Fairfax High School, and it was there he began to study music, learning how to play the piano and the guitar. In 1957, with some friends from school, they formed a trio called the Teddy Bears, named after the Elvis Presley hit, Let Me Be Your Teddy Bear. And together, they enjoyed success with a hit that made it into the top ten entitled To Know Him Is To Love Him, which was actually a statement that had been inscribed on the gravestone of Specter's dad. But the teddy bears didn't really last long. Specter came to realize that he struggled with severe stage fright and decided that his musical calling would be behind-the-scenes producing music, but he still had some soul-searching that he needed to do. He didn't really feel like he fit in in Los Angeles. He had tried to enroll in UCLA, but he eventually dropped out of college and headed back to New York to apply for a job actually working with the United Nations. I don't know whatever came of that, but he didn't stay in New York for long. He came back to Los Angeles as he seemed to discover that His true passion would be in the music industry, and Los Angeles was where he needed to be. He attempted to form another trio, but that never really took off. So from that point on, Spector focused on working as a music producer. By 1960, he was writing and producing hits for artists like Benny King, Ray Peterson, Gene Pitney, Curtis Lee, The Paris Sisters, and The Drifters. He had really begun making a name for himself in the industry, too. In 1962, he formed his own record company and hit the ground running with an all-female group named the Crystals, who enjoyed a string of hits in the early 60s. And by the time Spector was 21, he had already made his first million. At this point, Spector had developed a new and unique style of music called the Wall of Sound. If you've watched any documentaries about his music career then you may already be familiar with what the wall of sound is. But just in case this is the first you've heard of this, let me explain a little bit about the four-decade-long career of Phil Spector and his wall of sound. It became his signature sound, a technique that he developed in order for music to come across more vibrantly when played on the radio and in jukeboxes. What he did was bring together a large group of musicians who played the same instruments that weren't often used in playing in ensembles, like guitars. Those instruments had always been played by one person while recording. So he'd get several guitarists together to play at the same time to bring about a more powerful sound. Along with this, he put together songs for large groups of musicians to play orchestra-like instruments like woodwinds and brass and strings, to give it a symphony-like sound. Then he would have these recordings made in a studio that had a deep echo, which was imperative for him to get the sound that he wanted to achieve. This reverberation effect gave Spectre the unique and distinctive sound which came across very well on AM radio, giving it a richness that hadn't really been heard before. A songwriter who worked with Spector described the wall of sound like this. It was basically a formula. You're going to have four or five guitars lined up, and they are going to follow the chords. Two basses and fifths with the same type of line and strings, six or seven horns, adding in little punches. Formula percussion instruments like bells, shakers, and tambourines. He used his own formula for echo and some overtone arrangements with the strings. And with that signature wall of sound, by the time Spector was 24 years old, he had nearly two dozen smash hits with The Crystals, The Ronettes, Bobby Socks and the Blue Jeans, and The Righteous Brothers, whom he bought out of their contract and signed them in the fall of 1963. Spector also produced a Christmas album that year, which incidentally hit the shelves the same day President Kennedy was assassinated. By 1965, despite having huge success with the Righteous Brothers with songs like You've Lost That Loving Feeling and Unchained Melody, he felt like it was time for him to move on from them and sold their contract to another record label. After leaving Spector's production company, the Righteous Brothers would continue utilizing Spector's distinctive sound and continued enjoying commercial success. And when Unchained Melody hit the charts again 25 years later, When it was featured in the movie Ghost, it had been the first time Spectre had been on the U.S. chart since 1971 when he produced Imagine by John Lennon. And of course, there had always been a dispute as to who had actually produced Unchained Melody. Spectre says it was him. Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers says it was him. Needless to say, Spectre gained as many enemies as he did friends, if not more, throughout the years producing music but I will talk more about that side of the legendary producer a little bit later. The last act he signed to his label in the 60s ended up being Ike and Tina Turner. With them, Spectre felt like he had reached the pinnacle of his talents as a producer with their song River Deep Mountain High, but the song didn't get much past 90 on the U.S. charts. However, the song was a tremendous hit in the U.K. After that, Spectre became disinterested in the music business. Already having the reputation of being a reclusive type person, he remained out of the spotlight for a couple years. During this time, he married the lead singer of his group The Ronettes, Veronica Bennett, in 1968. But according to Veronica, Spectre was often violent, controlling, possessive, and he basically kept her locked up in their home for most of their marriage. I'll talk more about that a little bit later, but this gives you somewhat of a glimpse as to what Specter was like behind closed doors. During the time that he was in seclusion, he exhibited unhinged, somewhat psychotic behaviors, and his wife reported everywhere that he went, everywhere in the home, there were always guns. By 1969, Spector was ready to emerge from his self-imposed exile from the business when he penned a production contract with A&M Records, following that up with another string of Billboard hits. Then, in 1970, he was asked to go to England by the manager of the Beatles. He ended up working on a solo project with John Lennon, and that led George Harrison to enlist Spector to breathe some life into an album that the Beatles had all but given up on, entitled Get Back. Spectre, with his musical production styles, as well as infusing his own brand of sounds and musical arrangements, produced the album Let It Be, a massively successful Beatles album. But one Beatle was not happy with the way Spectre tweaked one song in particular. Paul McCartney, who composed The Long and Winding Road, A song which hit number one in the U.S. and the U.K., Paul claimed that the work was done without his knowledge or input. More than 30 years later, Paul put together an album called Let It Be Naked, which had all of the Beatles songs produced by Spectre remastered without his production styles applied to them. John and George were very happy with the way Spectre produced Let It Be and would go on To work with him in the years following on their own solo projects. As Spectre carried on into the 1970s with another string of hits, along with some not so well received albums, he started becoming reclusive again. According to a Spectre biographer, the reason that happened is because Spectre was actually almost killed in a car accident on the evening of March thirty-first, nineteen seventy-four, in which he was ejected from the vehicle through the windshield. He was near death at the scene and was rushed to UCLA Medical Center. He had suffered some very serious head injuries and was in surgery for many hours. He ended up requiring more than 300 stitches to his face and another 400 to the back of his head. And it was because of this accident and the head wounds that he had suffered that Specter began wearing wigs. And for the rest of the 1970s, Specter's career as a producer seemed to fizzle out with records and singles that enjoyed little to moderate commercial success. With the exception of his best-known hits being re-released as a compilation album in the late 1970s, most of his work was out of circulation in the United States. As the 1970s wound down, Spectre returned yet again to produce an album with Leonard Cohen, which did not go over well with Cohen fans who loved his acoustic sound and did not like Spectre's wallow sound. And Cohen came to find that he didn't like it either. The two clashed when attempting to put the album together. In 1979, Spectre produced an album with the Ramones, but their fans reacted much in the same way Leonard Cohen fans reacted. They just didn't like the commercial sound, accusing the Ramones of selling out for radio success. But that Ramones album would bring about some of their best-known and most successful songs. And then there were more rumors about Spectre's odd and violent behavior, even one that spread about him having pulled a gun on some of the band members of the Ramones during a recording session. Many years later, the drummer of the Ramones confirmed that Spectre did carry a gun and that he had a license to carry one, but they weren't ever really held hostage or anything. I will talk more about Phil Spector's history of gunplay a little bit later in the episode. So, anyway, Phil Spector was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989. In 1995, he emerged once again to produce an album with Celine Dion, but he ended up bowing out of the project, unable to really work well with Celine's management team. After that, Spector began to slowly unravel finding himself mired in legal battles and controversy up until 2003. And if the name Phil Spector wasn't familiar to you before then, it was about to be. So, back to that night at the House of Blues. In the early morning hours of February 3rd, 2003, after incessantly asking Lada to come over to his castle for a drink, after turning him down several times, she finally gave in and agreed to go for one drink. I don't know what compelled her to change her mind. Maybe he was making her promises about what he could do for her career. Even though she didn't know who he was when they met earlier in the evening, maybe she became aware of who he was, the extent of his legendary career, and maybe she came to believe that this was an opportunity for her to network. As things were not getting easier for her as she was an aging actress in Hollywood I don't know if Specter himself was able to convince her or if her colleagues at the House of Blue encouraged her to go because of who they knew him to be whatever it was Lana ended up changing her mind and going along with Specter when the House of Blues closed There were surveillance cameras outside the building which captured images of her getting into Specter's black limousine driven by his driver, Adriano Souza. They arrived at Spectre's pseudo-mansion, a place he called his Pyrenees Castle in Alhambra, at three in the morning. By 5 a.m., Lana was dead in the foyer of Specter's home with a single gunshot wound to the mouth. What happened in those two intervening hours? How did the night go from one drink to one gunshot? No one can really know for certain. We can speculate. We can infer from the physical and forensic evidence at the scene. We can take what driver Adriano had to say, but he was outside the home when the shooting occurred. But he did see and hear plenty. We can take Spectre's word for it, but I don't know how much that's really worth. However, we can't take lana's because she the only other person in the room at the time this all happened was dead his driver adriano was waiting outside by the limo waiting to give lana a ride home when they were done inside but she never exited the house he heard a pop and soon specter emerged through the door he had a gun in his hand and blood on his clothing and he said to Adriano, I think I killed somebody. Adriano looked past Spectre and into the foyer, and he saw Lana's lifeless body slumped in a chair, legs sprawled out in front of her, with blood coming from her mouth. He asked Spectre what had happened, to which Spectre answered with nothing but a shrug. Later, Adriano was challenged on what he had heard come from Spectre when he emerged from the home, supposedly saying, I think I killed someone. But in a moment like that, with the questionable command of the English language or not, I think a statement such as that one would be something seared into one's memory forever. Adriano made the 911 call shortly after five in the morning. He attempted to call Specter's personal assistant, Michelle Blaine, first in order to try and get the address of the home, but she didn't answer. He had left her an ominous voicemail. It said, Michelle, Michelle, it's Adriano. Michelle, I have to, you have to come to Mr. Phillips' house. I think he killed some, a lady. Please call me back. I'm going to call the police right now. When Michelle got the message later that morning because she had left her phone in the car, kind of an unusual move for her because she'd basically been on call for Spectre 24-7, she did not believe what she was hearing on her voicemail. So after attempting to call Michelle, Adriano dialed 911. In a nervous and shaky voice, he said, Hi, it's, uh, my name's Adriano. I'm a Phil Phillips Spectre's driver. I think my boss killed somebody. Please, can you send a car? The operator asked, and why do you believe he may have killed somebody? Adriana answered, because he has a lady on the floor and he have a gun in his hand. His voice quivered and he stammered over his words as they tumbled out. His call had actually gone to the California Highway Patrol 911 dispatch. So he was transferred to the Alhambra Police Department at which time he had to recount his story again and with his Brazilian accent difficult to understand, he could be heard becoming increasingly upset and frustrated, not to mention afraid of what might happen next as he is standing at the end of the driveway looking for the address of the home in order to let the operator know where to go. Police arrived at Spector's Alhambra mansion at 5.10 a.m. and found Lana Clarkson dead of a single gunshot wound to the mouth, and the gun was next to Lana's leg on the ground. Bill was standing there, staring at Lana with his hands in his pockets. Police immediately ordered Specter, who was reeking of alcohol still, to take his hands out of his pockets, but he refused. He became verbally combative and belligerent, and he ended up having to be tased and handcuffed by Alhambra police. He was placed under arrest and brought to the police station to be interrogated, an interrogation which was laden with profanity where he continued to rant and argue with police all the while berating Lana. I'm going to read you the transcripts of his interrogation because, well, I find it to be quite interesting and it might be kind of choppy because I'm going to have to edit out some of the foul language. Officer Pineda was the one who interrogated Spectre he told him that he has been arrested for murder. Spectre says, Well, of whom? Officer Pineda said, Okay, well, that's the thing we want to figure out. And there begins Specter's ranting. He said, This is the most bizarre nonsense, and this is absurd. This is absolutely absurd. They then start talking about getting a hold of Spectre's attorney, who is Robert Shapiro former O.J. Simpson attorney, from his trial eight years earlier for the murders of his ex-wife and Ron Goldman. Specter said, I want him down here. I'm going to make you fucking people pay for this. This is bullshit. This is nonsense. You people had me here for six fucking hours, maybe nine hours, and you have me locked up like some god fucking turd in some piece of and you treat me and then while this person eats and farts and you have me jerking around and when somebody comes over to my house who pretends to be security at the house of blues and comes over to my house remember i own the house of blues where this lady pretended to work okay and then she just blows her head open in my house and then comes and then then you people come around and arrest me and bang the shit out of my fucking ass and beat the shit out of me and then you pretend to arrest me and pretend like you're fucking Alhambra. And the mayor of Alhambra wants me to have Bono come and sing at the anniversary of bullshit. This is nonsense. This is absolute fucking nonsense. I don't know what the lady, what her problem is, but she wasn't a security at the House of Blues, and she is a piece of. I don't know what her problem was, but she certainly had no right to come to my and blow her open and a murder. What the is wrong with you people? Officer Pineda tried to interject, saying, Tell you what I'm gonna do. But Spectre cut him off, saying, Yeah. I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm going to be. Fucking. Somebody's gonna pay for the. fucking, I've been locked up for the last twelve fucking hours, and you people come into my house, rummage through my house, and you tie me down like a fucking pig. And you know, while somebody's dying there, and you know, and it scared the shit out of everybody, while somebody commits suicide. I just want to get the fuck here charge me with murder this specter's bail was set at 1 million dollars he made bail and went with his assistant to hide out at the hotel bel-air while his home was still being processed as a crime scene for the next week after his home was finished being searched for evidence specter returned to live there while he was on bail awaiting the ruling by the coroner in the meantime He was giving interviews and speaking to the media, telling anyone who would listen that Lana committed suicide in his home and that she kissed the gun before she pulled the trigger, even going so far as to saying disparaging things about her and her career. Lana, as I described earlier, was not really a household name, but she did have somewhat of a cult following. Her career was kind of on the skids by the time she met Spectre that evening at the House of Blues. At the end of 2001, Lana had suffered a fall and she actually broke both of her wrists. And that really put the brakes on her acting career because of a number of surgeries she had to have in order to fix her injuries. Her friends did acknowledge that being down with these broken wrists was very difficult for Lana to cope with. She sometimes seemed sad and depressed by the ordeal. And this is what would be at the center of Spectre's defense if and when the time came, that Lana was despondent over a floundering career, that she was in a depressed state of mind the night that she met Spectre, and that she decided to end it all in that moment. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you listening to this story, but to me, I'm fairly certain I'm not alone in thinking this, but I find that to be absurd, to think that Lana, a woman who never gave up chasing her dreams of making it in Hollywood, Randomly meets Phil Spector one night, goes home with him to have a drink, likely in an effort to network with the music producer, decides that life just isn't worth living anymore, and while in his foyer, and by a stroke of luck manages to find a gun in the first and only drawer she happens to see, the only drawer in this 10,000 square foot mansion that's pulled open, inserts the gun into her own mouth and pulls the trigger? Is that possible? Well, to be completely honest, yes, it is a possibility. But is it enough of a possibility to raise a reasonable amount of doubt? It might just be. But the forensic investigation and the blood splatter evidence will tell a different story. On September 22nd, 2003, the Los Angeles County Coroner ruled that Lana Clarkson's death was in fact a homicide and with that ruling on november 20th 2003 bill specter was officially charged with murder the latest in a string of celebrities to be prosecuted in los angeles many of them acquitted of some pretty serious charges snoop dogg was charged with murder in 1993 and acquitted in 1996 O.J. Simpson was charged with murder in 1994 and acquitted in 1995. Robert Blake was charged with murder in 2002 and acquitted in 2005. That's a story that we told in episode 6 and 7 in case you missed it. And this is where Spectre finds himself as well at the end of 2003, charged with the murder of Lana Clarkson. Spectre. While awaiting trial for murder in that giant hilltop castle in Alhambra grew increasingly more frustrated and angry, especially at the negative press that he was receiving in the media, he attempted to reach out to some of his old contacts, several famous people as well, in an effort to build an army of supporters for himself. But, as you can imagine, nobody with any sense wanted to be associated with Spectre in any way, shape, or form at that time. Completely understandable, right? But Specter didn't get it. He didn't understand why his friends were unwilling to reach out to him and get behind him. He grew more upset with the perceived betrayal. These people he thought were his friends completely turned on him. I really can't imagine that having shut himself in that mansion for the past 15 years, that he had been regularly networking with anyone in the entertainment industry very much. He lived in his own little world where he could be the emperor of everything. That is exactly what those years leading up to the shooting death of Lana were like. So, with no friends on his side and the media to him spinning the story way out of control, making him out to be some sort of maniacal person, Specter came up with this master plan of his to get his side of the story out there himself. In March of 2005, He had his assistant, Michelle, build a website for him, and he was going to use that platform to film himself making his own statements about what happened that night Lana died in his home. There are two videos I found on YouTube, and if you want to watch them, you can search them under the title, Wall of Guilt, but I will tell you what he said in both videos, and some of it is repetitive. In the first one, Specter is wearing kind of a nice gray suit. And in it, he says, I'm Phil Specter, and I've been accused of the most heinous crime that one can be accused of. And I'm here to dispel some of the incredible rumors that have come out about me and the act that took place in my home, which is a castle. The evening in question when the incident took place and we called for the paramedics, Instead of the paramedics showing up, the police showed up and negotiated with me for 45 minutes before they came into the house, but no paramedics came to help the injured party who had administered a self-inflicted wound. Then, after about 45 minutes, while the injured party could have possibly been saved from dying because nobody knows what her condition was, alive or dead, the police decided not to enter the house as human beings to protect and serve, but rather as animals Drunken animals, if you will, because I do not know that they were not drunk because all I know is they came in here barnstorming like stormtroopers and overwhelmed me physically between 12 and 16 of them from the Alhambra Police Department and knocked me down, broke my nose, gave me two black eyes, cracked my spine, all of which received medical attention afterwards. And I have the medical documents to back this all up. And they did not feel that that was sufficient. They tasered me with 50,000 volts of electricity. And there was a dying woman there which needed medical attention. And there was still no paramedics. Yet we called for the paramedics. Did you take Mr. Specter? No. Why? Duh. You know. I mean, those are the answers you get. You can indict. The district attorney can indict a ham sandwich. Only there's more meat on a ham sandwich. The only women who have come forward that have said anything that had to testify under oath were the ones of the grand jury, and they lied. I can prove they lied by simply asking them to take a polygraph test. If they want to take a polygraph test and the others who have come forward since were not asked to testify under oath, they just made statements to the DA. There's about 10 or 11 of them total. I'll show them how to make money. Here's a check for $10,000. And at this point in the video, Spectre is holding up a sign check for $10,000 pointed at the camera. The fingernail from the deceased thumbnail, which was her trigger finger, was capped off because she pulled the trigger with it. And it was a false fingernail and it came off, so half of it fell off onto the floor. And the other half, both halves, split and fell on the floor. Apparently, Robert Shapiro said that he had half and the police said that they had the other half. And now Robert Shapiro says, I don't have the other half because that's obstruction of justice and he can go to jail for that. So he's denied, denied, denied. And I fired him. I had been out to dinner at the grill. I had been to another restaurant, Dan Tana's, and then I stopped by the House of Blues close to closing time. And for all to say that Phil Spector could never have done this, he could never have stand up to shoot a girl in the mouth with a gun. Where's my history of this? How come in the last 40 years you've never heard stories about me pointing guns in women's mouths and blowing their heads open and shooting women? How come only after this Lana Clarkson incident did all of this stuff come out? I have been functioning fine as a human being. And that's where the first video cuts off. In the second video, he's dressed much more casually in a Hawaiian shirt kind of looking like he's on vacation rather under indictment for murder. In this video, he said, Hi, for those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Phil Spector. This is not a usual circumstance for me to sit here and talk under these conditions, but it has come time for me to bring out certain circumstances that have been brought to light and that have not been brought to light about an incident that happened in my home on February 3rd, 2003 and a great deal of misinformation that has come out in the media. I invited the police in, and all of this is documented. It's in the police report. They negotiated again as to whether or not to come in or not to come in. They finally, after 45 minutes and addressing in no way, shape, or form the injured party or showing any concern for myself, decided to come in but not as normal people. They rushed the house, proceeded to knock me over, cracked my nose, and deviated the septum, gave me a deviated septum, which I've had medical attention for, and cracked my spine. They knocked me unconscious and then proceeded to taser me with 50,000 volts of electricity, which didn't take the first time, which I wouldn't know because I was unconscious. And they proceeded to taser me with 50,000 volts of electricity again. This is documented in the police report of record I cannot make this up because it's public record and you can go to the files of the Alhambra Police Department and get this or the District Attorney of Los Angeles and get this information for yourself. I am five foot five. I weigh 139 pounds and I was apprehended by 16 policemen. She, meaning Lana Clarkson, took with her from the House of Blues an open bottle of tequila. She was intoxicated when we met and she was intoxicated in the autopsy report. She also had in her system 12 Vicodin. She may have accidentally taken her own life. She may have purposely taken her own life. She may have been eating the gun with her dancing. She may have been doing anything. I don't know why, when, how, or where, in what circumstance she may have taken her own life, whether she planned it or not. It's not my responsibility to know that. In every famous crime trial, What is the most important thing one has to have, important to be found guilty of any crime? That is M-O-T-I-V-E. Now, what was her motive for taking her own life? I don't know, and I don't really care. Somebody comes to your house and takes their own life, and you're put on trial, and that's the way it's happened, and for two years, nobody has come to my defense. I've lost my reputation. I've lost all my friends with what amount of friends I had to begin with. I can't work. Nobody asks me for my autograph for the right reasons. Everybody stares at me. How do you know that I invited the police in and they tasered me and beat me up and they broke my nose and cracked my spine? How do you know that? It's in the record, but nobody seeks to bring it out. Now let's talk about the grand jury indictment and these women who have come forward and testified that I did things against them. Not one of them Not one of all the ones that have come forward that you've read about in the newspaper ever, ever, E-V-E-R, ever filed a police report against me. Now, if somebody went on a date with you, pulled a gun, pointed it at your head, that's a felony, number one. You don't call the police. And if you do call the police, they don't arrest you or arrest him for sure and put him in handcuffs and take him off to jail. Where's the police report against me? Where's the felony charges against me? Pointing a gun at somebody's head is a felony, a misdemeanor at least, and you get taken off to jail. And in any case, where any of them said that there was a wound inflicted upon them, there's no ambulance, there's no paramedic report, there's no hospital report. It's all pure and simple bullshit. And that's what it is. And here, if these people are in it for the money... And he holds up a check to the camera again, that any of these women that have come forward to the grand jury, any of them can earn, get $100,000 right now. All you got to do is pass the polygraph test. That's it. That Bruce Cutler will give them a polygraph test and they can earn $100,000 if they can pass it. It's a signed check for $100,000. There are about 10, 11, 12 women. So that's a lot of money and that's what they can earn. if they can pass a polygraph test to support their testimony. Here's your chance to make money. And that's basically the gist of the videos. He's kind of rambling, kind of discombobulated. And I'll tell you more about the women who have come forward in a little bit when we get to the trials. And yes, that's plural. Trials. All the while the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office lead prosecutor on the case, Alan Jackson, was getting ready to take Phil Spector to trial for the second-degree murder of Lana Clarkson. And he is very well aware of the challenges of trying a celebrity defendant in Los Angeles. They always seemingly somehow tend to get off. But this prosecutor was determined to make sure that he would get justice for Lana and for her family. He had a passion for this case. And he wasn't going to let the fact that Specter was an iconic music producer get in the way of that. And not only was Specter a celebrity, he was quite eccentric as well, which seemed to feed the media interest in this case even more. All of the celebrities surrounding him, all the friends that he supposedly had, all his fancy attorneys, all the money that he throws around, all the colorful suits, the crazy hair, none of that was going to distract the prosecutor from doing his job. He was convinced that he had a solid case for murder. To him, this was no accident, and this was no suicide. Now, maybe Spectre hadn't planned on the evening ending like this. It certainly didn't seem like a planned event, anyway, this shooting death of Lana, which is why the charges against Spectre only rose to the level of second degree murder rather than first degree. And making the case even more complicated. Through some manipulative tactics of his own, by hiring and firing of different attorneys, Spectre has managed to cause a number of delays in the looming trial. His trial finally commenced on March 19, 2007, more than four years after Lana was shot to death in the foyer of Spector's home. Not only was the prosecutor going to show the jury a pattern of violent history involving guns, he was also going to prove his case against Specter by using the physical evidence found at the scene of the shooting. But there was and has been a great deal of emphasis placed on Specter's history of using guns to control people. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. The picture that had been painted of the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, the man now accused of shoving a loaded pistol into the mouth of Lana Clarkson and pulling the trigger. He is said to have a quote rich history of violence involving guns where did this all start it said that his need to always carry a gun and kept several of them in his home at all times began early specter had claimed that way back in 1958 while he was on tour with his first group that he was a part of the teddy bears that he was confronted in a restroom by four attackers he was kind of a scrawny and small man and he wasn't able to defend himself. I don't know why he was attacked by these men, but Spectre claims they urinated on him in that restroom, and from that day forward, he always carried a weapon, and he always surrounded himself with bodyguards. By the 1970s, having a gun was essential for Spectre. It was an extension of him, and it made him powerful. He was a man who needed to be in control. All the time. He also used guns to not only intimidate the women in his life but also the musicians that he worked with through the years. One incident involved John Lennon. He had hired Spectre to spearhead an album of cover songs he was putting together, and Spectre came to the studio usually high, always late, and always armed with a pistol tucked in a holster. One evening at the studio, Spectre purportedly fired the gun into the control room in very close proximity to John's ears. John, very agitated by the gunshot, yelled at Spectre, If you're going to kill me, kill me, but don't F with my ears. I need them. In another incident, Spectre is said to have chased John down the studio hallways yelling threats at him. He next teamed up to write songs with Leonard Cohen, which they did manage to write at least 12 songs in less than a month. But when it came time to record, there were some serious creative differences in the studio. It got to the point that, according to Leonard himself, the sessions became armed to the teeth. You were slipping over bullets and biting into revolvers in your hamburger. It all came to head one evening when Spectre grabbed Leonard and shoved the gun against his neck and said, Leonard, I love you. Leonard pushed the gun away from pointing towards him and said, I hope you do, Phil. Their album turned out to be a flop. And then there was Debbie Harry, the lead singer of Blondie. She never spoke out about her experience with Spectre, at least not until he went on trial for Lana's murder. She said that during the time when Spectre was coming out of one of his reclusive phases in the late 70s, There was a time when he invited Debbie to his home to talk about the possibility of a collaboration, but things went bad quickly. Debbie having said he pulled a gun, that notorious thing that he does. He stuck it in my boot and went bang. I thought, get me out of here. I just want to go home. Why would anyone be carrying a forty-five automatic in their home? Then there was the New York-based punk band, The Ramones, who enlisted Spectre as a producer in 1979, and the members of the band described working with him was like working with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type of personality. Things escalated quickly one night when Dee Ramone was so very tired and wanted to call it a night at the studio and go home. When he tried to leave, Spectre purportedly pulled out a revolver and told him he wasn't going anywhere. He answered, what are you going to do? Shoot me? Go ahead. I'm leaving. Goodbye. And then there was Specter's short-lived marriage to the lead singer of the Ronettes, Ronnie Specter. She knew he had guns all around the house, but that wasn't the only thing Specter had done to control her. After they got married, he basically kept her like a prisoner behind his mansion walls, isolating her from her family and friends, and basically ending her musical career. He often kept her tied up or locked in a closet so she couldn't leave, even going so far as to hide her shoes so she couldn't walk out on him. She even said that Spectre kept a gold coffin in the basement, specifically designed with a glass lid, threatening her with it, telling her that the coffin was for her and that if she ever tried to leave him, he would kill her and put her on display in the glass-topped coffin so that he could continue to keep his eyes on her. Even after she is dead and gone. Finally, one day in 1972, after four years of marriage, she shattered a sliding glass door, running out of the home barefoot. She divorced Spectre in 1974. Prosecutor Jackson had no shortage of experiences such as these to draw from when painting a violent and controlling portrait of Spectre for the jury. He told them that he had a very long history of violent outbursts against women, particularly when he was drinking, particularly when women would rebuff his sexual advances or attempt to leave his home after he'd invite them over, presumably for drinks and to talk business. Prosecutor Jackson told the jury in his opening statements, quote, You are going to be introduced to the defendant's very rich history of violence, a history of violence towards women a history of violence involving guns. That specter is someone who, when he is confronted with the right circumstances, when he is confronted with the right situations, turns sinister and deadly. The evidence is going to paint a picture of a man who on February 3rd, 2003, put a loaded pistol into Lana Clarkson's mouth, inside her mouth, and shot her to death. In order to give context to what happened on February 3rd, 2003, you are going to be introduced to evidence about the defendant's history of violence, about his pattern of violence against women, his history of losing his temper, his history of flying into rages, his history of pulling guns on unarmed women. The evidence will show, ladies and gentlemen, that when Lana Clarkson fell victim to Spectre on February 3rd, 2003, at about 5 in the morning, that she was the last in a very long line of women who had been victimized by Philip Specter over the years. Lana Clarkson will have to tell you her story through the evidence and from the grave. The prosecutor then showed the jury a crime scene photograph of Lana slumped back in a chair and her face covered in blood. These images are available on Google and if you search Lana Clarkson's name, they will come up in the results So be warned, they're really graphic. The prosecutor told the jury that they would bring to the courtroom to testify a host of female witnesses who would tell them how they had been threatened in the past by a drunken Phil Spector with guns held to their heads when they tried to part ways with him. And that's exactly what happened. Four women testified on behalf of the prosecution. One was a personal manager for comedian Joan Rivers, One was a professional photographer, one was a personal assistant to Spectre, and one was a woman he had once dated. A one-time girlfriend testified that Spectre held a gun to her head on two separate occasions several decades earlier. Another woman, Debra Robitaille, who worked for Spectre's record company for three years in the 1970s, testified that Spectre held a rifle to her forehead when she tried to leave his house after a party he had hosted. She said that he was drunk and he told her, quote, Just so you know, I'll blow your head off if you try to leave. I'll blow your brains out. Hoping that he was joking, she told him to stop it and put the gun away. And eventually she was able to leave. And then it happened again about 10 years later when she came to work for Spectre as a personal assistant. He put a gun to her head, just as in the case with Lana, in the foyer of his home again while he had spent the evening drinking heavily. In another incident in the mid 90s, a retired New York City police officer offered testimony about a party Spectre had attended at the home of Joan Rivers. The officer was working security detail at the party when it was requested of him to see Spectre out of the party after causing a ruckus. And while he was escorting Spectre out, he was spewing a profanity laden rant about women, how they all deserved a bullet in their effing heads, or something to that effect. Not only that, The incident basically repeated itself the following year at the same party hosted by Joan Rivers, and then the prosecution presented the evidence at the scene, and some of the following is very graphic in nature. Lana, first of all, was fully dressed, with her coat on, her shoes were on, and her handbag was across her shoulder. She was in the foyer of the home, found slumped in a chair in such a way that suggested that she was backing up from the threat of a gun being pointed at her. The gun was fired from what is described as an interoral position, meaning the gun was in her mouth when it was fired. It was found during her autopsy that her tongue had a significant bruise on it, a bruise that occurred before she was killed, a bruise that was caused by blunt force trauma, a bruise that indicated that It was caused by the gun barrel being forced into her mouth. A bruise that could prove the gun was shoved in forcibly, not inserted by her voluntarily in order to self-inflict the gunshot wound. The gunshot shattered Lana's teeth, and those were found and collected from the floor of the foyer. After the gun was forced into her mouth and the trigger pulled, the bullet tore a path through Lana's head with the forensic pathologist having testified that, mercifully, death was immediate. He described the path of the bullet from the barrel of the gun to the back of Lana's head, stating, The bullet nicked the tongue, lacerating the tongue, and splitting it. The bullet eventually hit the spinal column of the neck bone, and in the process of that, it broke the neck bone. It went through the spinal cord and tore it apart. That cord was completely severed, The bullet kept going and finally slowed down and goes to the base of the skull. Spectre's defense attorney attempted to suggest to the court that the situation of the gun in the mouth is undoubtedly a case of suicide. But the forensic pathologist said that most self-inflicted gunshot wounds are usually in the temple. The pathologist also took a stand for Lana, as he was disdainful of the defense's contention that Lana took her own life. He spoke to her friends and her family, stating that he found her to be a hopeful person, and the manner of death in this case is homicide, that he had never seen a case reported where somebody goes out with a stranger, gone to their home, magically come up with a gun to shoot themselves. Then the prosecution presented the blood evidence, fingerprint evidence, and DNA evidence. And you've probably heard this a thousand times, it isn't always as clear-cut as it is on those TV shows we watch. You see, Spectre actually had very little blood on him. The gun was covered in Lana's blood, but it also appeared to be smeared with blood, as the gun was found by investigators next to Lana's left leg. And by the way, Lana was right-handed. So the smears on the gun indicated that there had been an attempt to wipe the gun down. Eighteen small flecks of blood splatter were found on a coat that belonged to Specter, found hanging up in a closet, which indicated that he was in very close proximity to Lana when the shots were fired, as those eighteen small flecks of blood were Lana's. Lana did have gunshot residue on her hands, but that gunshot residue can occur even if you aren't actually holding the weapon, Just being close to the weapon when it's discharged is enough. Lana did have fresh bruises and injuries on her arms and wrists, indicating that she did put up somewhat of a fight, and that would explain how gunshot residue got onto her hands. I could see her trying to fight and pull that gun away from her face as it was being fired, leaving that residue on her skin. The jury was also shown pictures of Lana at the crime scene and also her autopsy photos. They saw up close the damage that had been done to her face and her mouth. During this portion of the trial, Lana's mother and sister, who had attended every single day, were not present in the courtroom during the presentation of these pictures of Lana. The forensic pathologist talked about the moment Lana died in very vivid detail. He told the jurors that the gun was in her mouth and that it was the recoil of the weapon firing that shattered her two front top teeth, causing them to be expelled out of her mouth and onto the floor. It was imperative that he made it clear that Lana became completely incapacitated pretty much instantaneously the moment she was shot. He said the bullet traveled through her head, severed her spine, and resulted in immediate death. He said, quote, she's going to lose consciousness. She won't be able to move her arms. All the arm movement up here, including out to the fingers, everything's just going to go. Wherever she was at, she was going down. Bottom line. Respiration will cease. Heart rate may still go for a little bit, but not for very long. But it could go. The blood pressure will drop pretty rapidly after that after the shot all brain functions will cease she will not talk she will not scream she won't cry she won't exhale and she won't cough the prosecutor asked him if she would not be able to expel blood forcibly out of her mouth after the shot was fired and he said yes that's correct the reason why this is important is because I told you earlier blood splatter was found on specter's white coat the prosecution would contend that this was a result of him having been the one to have shot lana based on the trajectory of the splatter his defense team would bring up an expert to say that the blood splatter resulted from lana exhaling blood onto his jacket after she shot herself but based on the testimony of the forensic pathologist who conducted lana's autopsy breathing ceased the moment she was shot she would not have lived to exhale one single breath. The defense continued with this strategy to combat the prosecution's case against Spector by discrediting the forensic evidence or trying to explain it away. Full disclosure, though, there were some pretty serious mistakes made when it came to the collecting and handling of evidence. One big, huge error occurred when Lana's body was first moved. The way in which she was shot, and the way in which she came to rest in the chair in which she was found, she actually hadn't bled out of her bullet wound. The way she came to rest, the blood sort of pooled inside of her mouth and around the wound. There was no exit wound, as the bullet came to rest at the base of her skull after it broke her neck and severed her spine. So when her body was finally being moved from that position it was in, blood actually began to spill out of her mouth and onto her dress soaking it, essentially destroying any possibility of examining the blood splatter evidence that may have been on her dress. Also, the forensic odontologist who had been called in on the case to examine the damage to her teeth actually lost a piece of Lana's tooth. The forensic pathologist told the jury that there were three vials that were collected to be examined by the odontologist, but when handling the vials, he accidentally broke one of them and losing the tooth fragment it contained. The room was extensively searched, but the fragment could not be recovered. Another concern noted by the coroner's office was the liftoff tape that was used on Lana's dress to gather evidence fibers had also compromised the blood splatter evidence as well. The pathologist also testified about a portion of Lana's acrylic nail that was missing from her right thumb. Remember Spectre had talked about this piece of evidence in his ranty videos? Well, the pathologist testified that the technicians from the crime lab did not find this missing piece of nail at the scene. But the prosecution accused the defense experts of finding that piece of nail when they had a chance to search the scene, but never turned this piece of evidence over. That seems like an incredibly huge oversight on the part of the crime scene investigators. And without that piece of evidence... It leaves the broken nail evidence to be left up to interpretation. If you were to entertain the idea that Lana shot herself, her thumb could have conceivably been the trigger finger and her nail broke off when she did it. But if you believe that Specter shot her, the nail could have broken and fallen off in a struggle to fend off the attack. It could have contained Specter's DNA. The way the nail broke off it could have told the story, but it was gone. I don't know if the defense team hid the evidence or not, but if they had, it was truly a shady move on their part for sure. Specter claims to have fired Robert Shapiro over this, but that too could have been all a part of Specter's theatrics. And as for the bruises on Lana... The forensic pathologist did testify that they were consistent with defense wounds. However, he could not be certain how old the bruises were. He also conceded that it was noted in one of Lana's medical reports from her primary care physician that she had been prone to bruising easily. And then there was the DNA and fingerprint evidence. Specter's DNA was not found on the gun or on any of the bullets remaining in the revolver. However, the gun was covered by a large amount of blood that came from Lana, and hers was the only DNA found on the gun. But the prosecution experts testified that it was possible for there to have been other DNA present, but it was overwhelmed by the amounts of DNA from the blood that covered the gun that came from the victim, making any other DNA on the weapon undetectable. In other words, if there was DNA on the gun that belonged to anyone else, It was essentially washed away when Lana's blood splashed onto the weapon. And the same goes for the fingerprints. No fingerprints were found on the weapon, but this too was also explained by experts that stated that the smooth surface of the gun is not always conducive of retaining fingerprints on the surface. The blood on the gun was also smeared, which seemed to indicate that the gun was handled after it was shot, after it was bled on, which meant that Lana could not have been able to handle or manipulate the gun any further, since she died instantly. The gun was handled after she was shot, and if you remember the testimony of Adriano de Souza, he saw Spectre emerging from the home with the gun and blood on it, saying, I think I just killed somebody. Spectre's DNA was found on Lana's left breast, and traces of Lana's DNA were found on Spectre's genital area. His DNA was found on one of two empty glasses that were next to an empty bottle of tequila in the home. The other glass contained Lana's DNA. This led to the conclusion that the two did share drinks and had a minimal amount of intimate contact. But there were no traces of semen or any signs that a sexual assault had occurred. None of Specter's DNA was found under Lana's fingernails. So the lack of his DNA on the gun, on the bullets, or under her nails somewhat bolstered the defense's contention that Lana did this to herself. They also bolstered this theory by dragging Lana and her reputation through the mud by describing her as a washed-up husband of an actress who was just done with life. But Lana had no shortage of friends and supporters who spoke up for her and told of the lovely woman who so many people cared for, and the prosecutor was one of them. After five months of testimony in his closing argument, he aggressively attacked the defense Spector's attorneys brought to the courtroom. He accused them of using Spector's money to sway scientific evidence in their favor, and he heavily criticized them for the disparaging remarks they made about Lana and her reputation, stating Lana Clarkson, through the evidence in this case, has suffered and endured something that no human being should ever have to endure. She's been murdered twice. She was murdered once on February 3rd, 2003 by Philip Spector when he put a gun in her mouth and that gun went off. And her character has been assassinated over the last four months through the presentation of the defense evidence, attempting to paint her in a way that simply wasn't true. And of the defense team, the prosecutor said, they've presented a checkbook defense. You hire enough lawyers to hire enough experts. If you pay someone enough money, you can get them to wear a tutu in court. You can get them to say just about anything in court. And I want to say, can you trust this defense? You have to ask yourself, is the evidence they're presenting trustworthy or an effort at manipulation? He asked the jurors to be there for Lana, to go with her as she left the House of Blues that night with Phil Spector. After she had reluctantly agreed to go home with him, he said to the jury, if you could say but one thing to Lana Clarkson in that parking lot, what would you say? You'd lean over and you'd whisper, don't go, don't go. You'd simply say, Lana, don't go. And the reason you would say that is because you know something that she did not know. You know the real Phil Spector. You know in your heart of hearts that he is responsible for her death that he killed her. The prosecutor also reminded the jury of the 911 call that Adriano D'Souza made when he told the operator his boss had killed somebody and he literally had the smoking gun in his hand. The closing argument made by the prosecutor was incredibly impassioned and I was very, very moved by it. And it moved most of the jurors, but not all of them. On September 26, 2007, after 12 days of deliberations, the jury let the judge know that they were deadlocked 10-2 to in favor of conviction. The judge was forced to declare a mistrial, but prosecutors were not going to let this go. They announced that they would seek to retry Philip Spector again, and based on the information they got from the jurors, they weren't going to change their strategy all that much. It was just those two jurors they held the standard of reasonable doubt much too high. They weren't willing to convict Spectre because of the slim chance that Lana could have killed herself. That was enough doubt for them to not be able to vote guilty. A couple of weeks after the mistrial, the prosecutor confirmed that his office would be taking Spectre to trial for a second time. Spectre would also come with a new set of attorneys. A year later, on October 29, 2008, The second trial began, and this time it wasn't going to be televised, and the prosecution pretty much kept the same presentation of their case. Five months later, on March 23, 2009, both sides presented their closing arguments and handed the case over to the jury. Almost three weeks later, on April 13, 2009, the jury convicted the by then 69-year-old of the second-degree murder of Lana Clarkson. He was sentenced to 19 years to life in prison, 15 years for the murder, and 4 years for using a firearm in the commission of a crime. And as of June 2016, all of Spector's appeals have been denied and all have been exhausted. Spector is now 78 years old. He has been an inmate at the California Healthcare Facility, which is a prison hospital in Stockton, California, since October of 2013. He will become eligible for parole in 2028 when he will be 88 years old. I did not know who Phil Spector was prior to 2003. I didn't know who Lana Clarkson was either, and her story is one that fills me with a great deal of sadness. There are many actors and actresses that never really quite make it in the entertainment industry, and they just sort of fade out into the background, but I don't really think that that was ever going to be something that was going to happen to Lana. She was very much loved and cared for by so many people family, friends, devout fans. She wasn't quite a household name, and it's truly heartbreaking that when she did become one, it was a result of her tragic and untimely death. I wasn't sure what I was getting into when I started this story. I wasn't sure how I would feel about Phil Spector or Lana Clarkson when I got to the end of this. I somehow thought maybe I'd feel a measure of compassion for Spector, being so old and frail and sick in prison still, but no. I'm really not feeling that. I've only come away with tremendous regret that Lana is no longer in this world. Thank you for joining me for this 35th episode of California Dreaming. Please let me know what you think or how you feel about this episode on the Facebook group. Join the discussion group and like the page. The group is growing, and I'm making a big effort to be more interactive on a regular basis. I can't tell you how deep I tend to delve into these stories, and sometimes I forget to check in with you guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but I promise I'm working at getting better at that. I'd like to thank all of you who recently joined in supporting California Dreaming on Patreon. If you've been a supporter, don't worry. I will mail one of my new buttons out to all of you. And for new supporters, you will get one too, along with some of the other perks I've given out. For as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to exclusive content, sometimes an early release, and of course, all the giveaways I have for you guys. So if you love the show, and you want to see it grow, and maybe someday I'll be able to do this full time, then visit the Patreon page. There are terror levels for everyone. Also, I have a Twitter giveaway thing that I'm doing right now. I believe the tweet is pinned to the top of my Twitter page. All you have to do is retweet that pinned tweet and be entered into my drawing that I'm having on March 31st, which will be the 25th anniversary of the death of actor and California native Brandon Lee. I do have a Patreon episode up about his life, career, and untimely death, which I will be releasing at midnight on the 31st for everyone else to have access to. And I will announce the winner of my Twitter drawing to receive a gift from me, so don't forget to retweet. California Dreaming has found a home on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We have joined forces with an amazing group of podcast shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 41 Owned, Film Roast, and we have some new shows that are in the works, hopefully coming to you soon. You can find us all on www.orbitaljigsaw.com, and you know what else? We have also launched the Orbital Jigsaw Podium's Facebook group. All of us from Orbital Jigsaw are there, along with a bunch of other hosts from your favorite shows and some of our biggest and best podcast listeners and fans. It's more than just talking about our shows, but rather, it's an interactive group where we share ideas, articles, and news about all things podcast and social media related, and much more. It's a fun place to get new ideas and share your experiences both as a host and a listener and find out what's working and what doesn't. It's a supportive, inclusive, drama-free group. Search Orbital Jigsaw Podience, spelled P-O-D-I-E-N-C-E, and request to join. You can also find links to the Orbital Jigsaw Network merchandise store. You can get your California Dreaming t-shirt, mug, phone case, tote bag, and more. Every purchase supports the creation of this show. And before I let you go, I have a couple of promos to play for you guys. Two shows that you might enjoy. One from Lainey and her show, True Crime Fan Club, and one from Based on a True Crime. Take a listen. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my show is for you. I'll peel back the curtain and give you a glimpse into the life and crimes of some of the most demented minds. Check out the episode Broken Bonds and listen to a brother reveal a deeply held secret, or hear about the day that the heavy metal community will never forget in the episode Dimebag. These episodes are just a sample of our catalog, so you have plenty to binge. Just search for True Crime Fan Club Podcast and any podcatcher. You won't want to miss an episode. I'm Chelsea and I love true crime and I'm David and I love horror movies and we co-host Based on a True Crime, a podcast where we discuss the real cases that inspired some of the most gruesome crimes and criminals to grace the big and small screens. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Google Play if you're interested in hearing the true stories behind some really great movies, including In Cold Blood, The Town That Dreaded Sundown and Murder by Numbers. So grab some popcorn, with extra fake butter topping, of course, and join us as we explore just how much of the movies that kept you awake at night are real. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams.